Good morning, my name's Jen, my pronouns are she, her. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. In Ahab's time, Hiel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Abiram, and he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years, except at my word. This is the word of the Lord. I've been told I need to stand behind the speakers. I promise I'm not getting too big for my britches. <laughs> um, so there will be images kind of scrolling on the screen for this first bit. There's nothing extra to know about those. Just feel free to ponder those. They're images of our uh, main focus character today. So we started this series on weird people doing weird things in the Bible with Deborah and JL, for those of you who recall. We've heard a lot of funky stories since then, um, and we're ending with another uh, fairly famous female name from scripture. I do just want to remind for any littles in the room, there will be some adult themes, so just be aware that there might be some, some language or themes that you might want to debrief after if they're in the room. So, I have always been pious, deeply committed to the gods of my ancestors, even as a small girl, I imagined my future as a servant in the temple, following in the footsteps of my father, the priest. However, he is also a king, which makes me a princess. And I felt a deep sorrow when I found I was promised as part of a political deal to the king of a neighboring country. And so instead of walking a path into religious service, I walked the path of so many royal young women into the bed of a stranger. My grief compounded when I realized, in no short order, that my new husband Ahab was weak of character and mind. He broke the laws of his people and his God, dealing in bribes and backhanded agreements, and he was so easily swayed by those around him. The prophets of his own people spoke against him and his rule, and while their accusations had the ring of truth, I was shocked as time and time again he allowed them to speak on. One of their most powerful prophets cursed the entire land with drought except upon his word. Having grown up in halls of politics, though, I decided to use this weakness to my advantage. I convinced him to build a temple to my God, a bit of my home in this foreign land. 
I was able to bring priests from my country to serve, and this was the first time I began to feel at ease. This country was hateful toward anyone not of their people, dehumanizing us and vilifying our gods. But now I could at least worship freely, Ahab beginning to join me even. Once our temple and worship spaces were established, I went to work against those prophets who lobbed disrespect at my husband, for it simply could not stand. And so I set out to end the enemies of my king by having the naysaying prophets of Yahweh removed. Eventually, as far as I am aware, I had ended the lives of all but this drought-conjuring man of their god. Three years after the drought did begin, as he predicted, this troublemaker returned, asking for the ear of my king. He dared to challenge the priests of my homeland, and so Ahab rounded 450 of my prophets and gathered at Mount Carmel. Meanwhile, the Yahweh prophet did his best to stir the people against me and my God, but they wisely stayed silent in response to him. At the mount, once the servant of Yahweh arrived, my prophets were challenged to set up an altar with an offering and sacrifice and to call fire down from our God. For hours, they implored the divine, begging, wailing, cutting themselves to offer the power of life in their veins in exchange for a show of the power of our God in the face of these taunts and insults. But alas, their offering remained dry. No show was made by my gods. Then, presumably through some sort of impressive sleight of hand, after dousing his offering with several large pitchers of water, this other prophet was still somehow able to burn down his offering, the wood, the altar, even the water that pooled in the trenches encircling the space. Then, as if his victory wasn't enough, he dared to slaughter every one of my beloved prophets in cold blood. When my husband told me of the tragedy, I fell on my face and tore my garments. I never thought I could feel loss rip through my center like this. 450 men of my God just slaughtered in a valley. With a rage I never knew, I sent a simple and clear message to this prophet. May my gods deal with me, may it ever be so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of theirs. If I could, I would have hissed every word at him. I was enraged then for over a month when he was nowhere to be found. In the meantime, my spineless husband was enthralled in a grand display of utter weakness. A neighboring king, Ben-Hadad, attacked threatening to take all of us wives and the children of my husband and all of our gold and silver. When Ahab unbelievably just agreed to this, Ben-Hadad saw how easily my husband surrendered and had no reason not to take everything from everyone. The people begged Ahab to fight. And so in a rare moment of courage, my husband refused Ben-Hadad's new demands. Through tricks and drunken mishaps and a promise by his Yahweh, somehow the victory was ours. The next drama we endured centered on the most domestic of conflicts. After the drought broke, we sought as many resources as possible to sustain us. Within view of the palace was the most fertile and gorgeous vineyard. Ahab approached the owner, offering any price to purchase this land so we could convert it into a vegetable garden. 
Yet the owner had the audacity to refuse his king in this request, even though payment was offered. What sense does it make for a people who stole their land from others to claim ancestry as a reason to refuse their king? Ahab could rightly have just taken this property, and yet he whimpered away. So I assured him I would claim his rightful property. It was nothing to set up a community day of fasting celebration, find two men of ill repute who would attend. Our landowner was placed in a seat of honor with my hired hand seated nearby, and they made quick work of accusing him of cursing both God and king. Calling for his execution at this treason, they were impressively influential, and in no time our nuisance was stoned to death outside the city. When I was sure the deed was done, I cheered Ahab with the good news and shooed him off to purchase the vineyard. How could I have imagined that our ghost of a prophet, the man responsible for obliterating my countrymen at Carmel, would meet Ahab there and spew curses against him, his lineage, even me? My husband would die in the same place as the vineyard owner. His entire line would be wiped out. I would be devoured by dogs. How dare he? And yet time went on, and after three years of peace, back to war it was as normal. I could never have believed that my husband would indeed be killed in battle, and his blood licked up by dogs in the exact place the vineyard owner had died. My sons took his place as king of Israel for years, but in the end, that hateful prophet's words were true. My son, Joram, was killed in battle during his reign, betrayed just as my husband had so often betrayed others. And as the enemy's army approached, I used the only power left to me. I made my face and arranged my hair, wiping away the evidence of grief for my son from my eyes. Knowing my end was imminent, I proudly called to the victor from my tower window as he approached. Have you come in peace, you murderer of your master? Not even giving me the respect of a response, he simply cried out, who is with me? Two servants appeared beside me in the window, and before I could resist, the usurper screamed, throw her down! And I met my end on the ground beneath. Trying, I suppose, to make a final gesture, knowing I was still the daughter of a king, and after eating and drinking his fill at my son's table, he called for my burial. But by the time they came to collect my remains, all that le was left of my body was my skull, my feet, and my hands. For the rest of me had been devoured by dogs. That is the story of Jezebel, very fictionally written from her perspective. This is the account that we see in First Kings. So I would like to know what is it that you know or have heard about this woman Jezebel, either in church or in culture? When you hear that name, what comes to mind? Yeah. I always thought she was a streetwalker. You always thought she was a streetwalker? With red lips. Yeah, <laughs> with red lips. <laughs> um, that one of the ways she's betrayed archetypally is a prostitute. She's a Jezebel. Mm -hmm. Yep. She was never unfaithful to her husband. 
Um, we'll throw that out there. I'll, I'll explain the one New Testament reference we have where some of that comes from before we're done. What else? What have people heard of or, or known about Jezebel? Jezebel's spirit. Okay, so the Jezebel spirit is stirring up trouble and exciting all the men. Okay, no, we're going to talk about Jezebel spirit too. So, what else? Yeah. Yes, she took somebody's property. That's the vineyard owner. So I was backhanded with all of that, but yeah, that story was the vineyard owner. She had him falsely accused of treason so that he would be murdered and then her husband could go take the land. I tried to be subtle. That's why I didn't use Elijah's name. Elijah's the, the Yahweh prophet in the story. Anybody else? Just a temptress? Okay. So I became a Christian, and most of you have heard some of this story, but I became a Christian when I was 15, 16, into a charismatic Assemblies of God fundamentalist church <laughs> that was small in a farm town. So all of the things that you would expect to come with that did, in fact, come with it. Um, and because it was during the time of the Vineyard Movement or the Brownsville Revival in the 90s, for anybody who remembers all of that, Lots of talk about demon spirits, lots of exorcisms and that sort of thing. And the spirit of Jezebel was like the main one that I was most familiar with. Um, we were casting her out of people all the time. Um, and, and it really was this idea, if you were rebellious, if you were curious about other religions, oops, if you um, used your intellect too much as a woman, um, if you had spaghetti straps, you were, um, you were opening yourself up to Jezebel because you were tempting men. I mean, you can't, you can't remove it completely from the purity culture at that time, other fundamentalist thinking, but then when you add demons to it, it just becomes like a whole thing. And so the spirit of Jezebel was basically any time a woman behaved any way outside of patriarchal, complementary submission, we needed to fight against the spirit of Jezebel. So in my head, not knowing scripture super well, I was like, this woman had to be like super awful. <laughs> but I will say that the only things that we know about her are the stories in First Kings, which aren't great, and I'll talk about that. And then in Revelation, which for anybody who doesn't know, not literal, very symbolic, none of that is actually meant about what it says it's about. And there's lots of reasons for that, but this isn't a sermon on Revelation. So... She's mentioned there to a specific church. There are warnings to some of the different local communities in Revelation. And to this church, they talk about the spirit of Jezebel in terms of idolatry. So the reason that we get this conflation of idolatry and adultery is because throughout the Old Testament, when you look at the prophets, one of the one of the primary accusations that they bring against the people of God before the time of the kings and after the time of the kings is that they have prostituted themselves to other gods because in their world, they had been taught that fidelity to Yahweh and the law that had been passed down was central, primary, pivotal to everything else that they were as a people. 
And so they likened following other gods to cheating on your spouse um, because the relationship was meant to be that, in, that intimate and that driven by fidelity. So somehow Jezebel bringing in these other gods becomes equated with prostitution, witchcraft, doing evil, all sorts of other things that we never actually see her do. It's the fact that she brought those temptations into Israel. You hear this name all over pop culture. I heard it dropped in an American Dad um, episode that Angela was watching just recently. Um, there's a Betty Davis movie where it, the name is Jezebel. Um, it's the name of the prostitutes in The Handmaid's Tale. It's in the first line of Harry Styles' song, Little Freak. Um, end day novels, demonic YouTube warning videos that are still being published today, I was shocked to find out. All of these are focused on the archetype of this woman whose story is really just a couple of chapters. I don't understand how she's become synonymous with evil, witchcraft, harlotry, prostitution, corruption. I spent a lot of my time on this sermon just trying to find out why. I talked to a friend of mine who um, is Jewish. He didn't even know the name, like he, it didn't even register for him. I found things online from Catholics and Jewish folks and, and all sorts of other people, and either they came from a conservative slant that said it was because she didn't accept her role as a woman at the time, being submissive, you know, converting to, to Judaism and all of that, or they didn't know either. <laughs> so depending on where you land on how bad it was for her to be who she was, either there is an answer or there really isn't one. Throughout history, including scripture, we do not see women named very often. Very often when they are, they are being used as a scapegoat for the choices of a man who was the one in power in their circumstance. Eve was the ditzy woman, tricked into eating fruit and then tempting Adam to sin. Abraham slept with his wife Sarah's maid because she wanted him to. We say David committed adultery to paint Bathsheba as a consenting and willing partner, which she wasn't. That was rape. Just in case that's not super clear in scripture, what happened with David and Bathsheba was assault. If you want to go to the first text slide. All of the actions that we see Jezebel take are paralleled by men considered to be good in the eyes of God um, in the Old Testament. Jezebel did kill 400 of Yahweh's prophets. Elijah killed 450 of hers. She was the foreign wife of a king. Solomon had literally hundreds of wives who all led him to worship other gods. He built structures for those gods into Israel. We don't know any of those women's names. Jezebel had an innocent man murdered so that her husband could buy his property. King David schemed to have Bathsheba's husband killed through trickery by sending him to the front lines of a battle in war to hide the fact that his rape of Bathsheba had left her pregnant. He is a man after God's own heart, according to the Psalms. Jezebel defied expectations, standing in her strength and monarchic power to the end. Just a few weeks ago, we applauded Deborah and Jael for standing up to male power 
of, of military force in their day. So I'm going to ask the question, why was Jezebel known as being so bad? I'm genuinely curious as to your thoughts. Yeah, Jacob. Okay. Wow. Um, so Jacob's reading a book about the perspective of women in the mid in medieval times. And Jezebel comes up a lot, and the primary issue is the makeup, because she made herself up before she knew she was about to be killed. And so they use that as a reason not to wear makeup. Again, oops, so um, is what it is there. But yeah, Jennifer. So Ahab was clearly not a strong leader, so it could be that she stepped up and she did choose to help lead and she did make decisions on his behalf at a time when women weren't really supposed to do that. Now, other countries, interestingly enough, didn't have as much of an issue having female like queens and, and things like that. But in Israel, yeah, it was definitely not, not a thing. So it, it could have just been that she was seen as stepping out of her lane um, when Ahab wasn't rising to the task at hand. Yeah. Maybe this is a little bit of twisting it, but I know for many women in our society, when they have spoken up about something or other, um, the story's been twisted. And, you know, said, oh, well, she did, she caused this to happen, and it makes it look like she's a bad person. And I wonder if maybe some of that is like, um, maybe this is what you're saying, is like a, like a twisting of it. Yeah. No, I mean, I think, and we did a song today that, that referenced it, and, and please know, I love our dudes. Like, I'm not a man-hater. I love all of you so much. But there has been a lot revealed in the last couple of decades about women who were seen as the troublemaker when really they were experiencing abuse at, at the hand of somebody in spiritual authority. And that maybe some of that even in the way Jezebel's story is portrayed to us that same lens was being used, that these things were happening. We can't blame Ahab because he was the king, so we need to blame his wife. I definitely think that could be part of it. Yeah, Elmer. Yeah, this just seems to be very common to the perspective of women who didn't fall in line at that time, that they were the problem. Yeah.
Yep. No, I, that's a great point. A lot of the Old Testament does appear xenophobic. Um, now, I'm going to talk a little bit about that in a minute, but it wasn't until Jesus came and started sharing things like the Good Samaritan. The reason the Good Samaritan was so infuriating was because people still held the belief that anybody who wasn't Jewish was unclean, therefore evil, therefore didn't matter, right? So absolutely, one of the things that Jesus did was to begin to open that up. And then we have Paul tell us, there is no Jew or Greek. There is no male or female. We are all one under Christ. It's 2,000 years and we're still working on that. But, <laughs> but yes, that, that is part of the story that we see unfold as, as scripture moves on, absolutely. Anybody else? Right. It was written by the men who Which is why I tried to write her story <laughs> as best <laughs> as I could. Yes, so history is written by the victor, and most often that means somebody in power. And so her story is not being told from her perspective. We're seeing it from a very specific, we are building up how important and great Israel is throughout history. That, that's the reason the kings were written, and so that is, that is why we have the story portrayed the way it is because the kings need to be held up in the eyes of the people. So even though Ahab was weak and did more evil in the sight of the Lord than any king before him, we don't see a lot from Ahab. We don't see the bad actions of Ahab anywhere, really, in this story. We just see Jezebel. Yeah. Yeah, we're people of bumper stickers, and so we can take a name and begin to attach all sorts of things to it to create a following or a belief system. In my undergrad program, we literally had a book called Bumper Sticker Ethics, and it was talking about worldviews. Um, it's, it's very prevalent. We would prefer a tagline or clickbait to doing the work of the research. Now, to be fair to all of you, that is our job as teachers in the church. <laughs> You're not supposed to have to go do all that research. That's why we're here, because we're nerds who love it and want to pass it along to you. You have other things to do. So there is, there is absolutely, though, the reality that we hear something and we just run with whatever reason we're given why that person or that thing or that idea is what it is. Imago, luckily, is a place that, that works really hard to get us to challenge that all of the time. <laughs> Yeah, Elmer. <laughs> you were at Bloomington Pride, right? Yeah. Um, Elmer said he saw, saw a shirt with the name of a bar that said, our women are tough and our men are pretty. So um, that's a bumper sticker I could maybe get behind. Um, although I'm more pretty than tough, so... Um, all right, so Israel was formed as a people group um, 
to believe that Yahweh was the only true and good deity, that they had become a people of God to shine a light in the darkness of the world by following what was at that time an incredibly progressive set of civil and religious instruction, what we call the law. Yes, it looks barbaric from our perspective. It was not so in that barbaric ancient time. One quick example, the idea of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, that was not meant to be. If somebody pokes you in the eye, you poke them back. It was meant to um, lessen retribution to say, if somebody pokes you in the eye, you don't get to cut off their arm. So in that time, if, if a wrong was done to me, I could take whatever level of recourse I wanted. The law said, no, it needs to be equal. You don't need to keep, like we're trying to remove conflict. That is a very, very teeny tiny um, anecdote, but the law as a whole was, was given to them, and you see this clearly written in the Old Testament, so that they would be a light on a hill, so that if they lived the way God was calling them to live without child sacrifice, without temple prostitutes, with all of the civic and religious and hygienic rules that had been laid out, the surrounding peoples would see them and say, we see a better way. This is a better way to live. And eventually all of the people would come to understand and know Yahweh, the way he was, he was understood by the Jewish people of the time. We don't ever see a season where that was actually the focus or where the people are overall acting in accordance with that law. There are times, there are brief periods, but most of what we see are all of the creative ways they found to break those rules. This is why following other gods was often considered so abhorrent that it was compared to prostitution or adultery. The entire book of Hosea, by the way, is written around this exact idea. So if you've ever wondered what the heck was going on in Hosea, Hosea is living out basically a live action play showing how God felt and dealt with the um, infidelity of Israel by continuing to call them back, continuing to take them back, continuing to heal them and deal with the consequences of them laying with their lovers, so to speak. The truth is that Jezebel was a foreigner in what would have seemed a xenophobic country. She was a fundamentalist of her faith. She was without agency, and she was married off to someone who couldn't protect her or himself. She was strong, determined, devoted, she was a religious woman, and she was more skilled in her use of power and leadership than the husband she was traded to. To the end, she refuses to buckle under patriarchal power and authority, but stands firm in her faith and her confidence. Um, if you could go to the last slide. The way I want to summarize this is that our lenses, our perspectives, and our worldviews matter. The Bible is still my holy scripture. I, I truly hope that nothing I've said today undermines the beauty and the value of the Old Testament um, because that is not my intention. I do understand scripture to be the developing and evolving understanding of God um, by the Israelite people over time. So that does influence the way I read it. 
but I just want to make sure it's clear, I in no way um, intend to undermine the veracity of Scripture or the authority of Scripture for whatever that means for you. But our lenses matter. Jezebel's story is of a fundamentalist who acted in accordance with the faith of her people. She was the daughter of a king, knowing war and violence as the default means of dealing with conflict. From her perspective, somebody saying no to their king was unheard of, and Ahab didn't have to even offer a, a payment, and he did. And so from her understanding and how she had grown up and who she understood herself and her king to be in the world, she acted accordingly. She was a woman in a world literally ruled by patriarchy, and she was part of an incredibly violent time. And at no point did she act any differently than Elijah or the kings of Israel themselves. So what's listed up here is just a sampling of the things that make up our worldviews. And whenever two of those things intersect, we have created a whole separate way that we interact with the world. So if I am a white woman, I've experienced the world a certain way. If I am somebody who grew up in poverty, I have experienced the world a certain way. If I am a white woman who experienced poverty as a child, that's its own unique perspective. And so we have to understand that we all see the world through literally a web of all of the different things that make up who we are, and so does everyone else. Whether it's your response to the Jason Aldean video, deciding how to vote, growing up with a lot or not enough, all of the intersectionalities of our identities, our Enneagram number, our Myers-Briggs, it all impacts not only how we perceive truth and understand truth, but as unfortunately we see today, even what we will include as truth. That is a very scary place to be sometimes. I personally experienced a journey of beginning to understand just how big God can be through my ethics. I dated somebody for a time who was in the military. He felt like God had called him to the military. I was and still am a pacifist who believes that our faith and our patriotism don't necessarily live in exactly the same house. He and I would joke about if we were to get married and somebody saw the cars in the driveway with the bumper stickers, one says, you know, let's share hugs, not arms, and another one is like, yay, let's go military. But I realized that at the end of the day, God was big enough for us to both be right, because we both had a limited understanding of everything at play on the human stage, right? And we came to a place where we understood we needed to give space for each other. And we actually had really great dialogues, because we started from the place that we both were seeking out the heart of God and what we believed to be true. Um, I have another friend, Jeff Earlson. I always use him as an example. Um, when it comes to the idea of pacifism versus just war or just violence. So if he and I were in the same situation where there was an innocent and an aggressor, sin for me would be to use violence against that aggressor without trying to find another way to shield the innocent, find a creative third way, find a way to defuse the situation. For somebody who believes in just war, just violence, in that situation, it is the right thing to do to act in whatever way necessary to neutralize that threat. God is big enough for us to both be right. 
I very strongly believe that the environment is important, that we are doing a lot of damage to this earth that we call home. And there are so many things that, that contribute to that, including things like big box stores. My partner earns her living as a team lead at Walmart. And I have known countless families whose babies were allergic to lactose who did not have the money to shop for expensive formula. And if it wasn't for Walmart, they couldn't have fed their children. There are tensions that we all hold and our experiences, our worldviews, the things that have made us who we are, our neurodivergence, our trauma, the region we grew up in, small town versus big city, all of it impacts how we understand truth. So my question to you is, do you make space for God to be big enough for you and those who believe differently from you to both be right? Can you debate and discuss ideas humanely without boiling somebody down to black or white? Have you wrestled with or reconciled apparent contradictions in scripture or your understanding of God? Is love your starting point? Is reconciliation always in the front when you're interacting with other people? Is shalom your goal? We've talked about shalom in the past here. The idea of shalom is not just peace as in lack of conflict, it is utter wholeness. Not just within, I'm seeking wholeness within, I'm seeking shalom within myself, but am I also seeking shalom in every situation that I'm in that poses conflict? Am, am I really mindful of that at work with my family, with acquaintances that I know I disagree with, with the stranger on the street at a public event wearing a t-shirt that makes it clear they don't think I deserve to exist with rights. Can I still make space to exist with that person with some sort of harmony? It's not easy, <laughs> but is that at least the goal? Next week is communion. What I'm describing is what I believe to be the ministry of Christ. If we are Christ followers, and I don't assume everybody in this room is, but if we are Christ followers, that is the lens that we have been called to. And because we've been called to it, we've also been given the grace to keep it front and center. You don't have to fight it on your own all the time. God's grace is available to lubricate the places of friction. Whatever stories we've heard about each other in this room, whatever impressions we've made, whatever beliefs we have, the table next week is where we come together into what we hold common, that the life and death of Jesus invite us to view the world, each other, and ourselves through this lens of love, compassion, empathy, and hope. And I truly believe, Imago, that that is going to continue to be the path that we forge through our community and in our individual lives and with ourselves. Thank you.